When I was growing up in India, in boarding school up in the beautiful mountains of South India, 7,000 feet in the mountains, we had a teacher come out to our school who had been a scoutmaster in Boy Scouts, and he started a scouting program. We got the Boy Scouts started, and I joined up, and I started working my way through, through the ranks. I got up to be a star scout, halfway to life, trying to, envisioning Eagle, and halfway through, you know, after three years, the teacher said, I'm done, headed back to the States, and there went the scout program. But one thing I always remembered, the thing that you had, one of the very first things you all always had to learn was the scout motto. What is it? Be prepared. Had to have that down before you can even get started. As Christians, that ought to be our motto as well. Be prepared. Last Sunday, we talked about the incredible event that we are so looking forward to, and we call that the rapture. We spent a great deal of time last Sunday talking about the rapture. That's the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ to take His church before the horrendous events that are going to be taking place during the time of tribulation, before the actual second coming of Christ. Since the rapture could happen at any moment, we need to be what? We need to be prepared. We need to make sure that we have a relationship with Jesus Christ and that He is actually our Savior and our Lord. We can't just believe intellectually that Jesus is the Son of God. The the demons believe that. And they are certainly not saved. There has to be a heart change, there has to be a heart transformation, a life transformation. As you think about the rapture, you may remember a series of books and movies uh, that came out a while back called Left Behind. Now, admittedly, I never read any of those books, never saw any of those movies. I was busy teaching English in somewhere uh, around the world, so this didn't really catch my attention. Um, but I do remember watching the original, the original Left Behind movie. You remember the name of that movie? It was called A Thief in the Night. Um, saw it on the Logos ship. Um, it was a book-selling ship that uh, went, went around, a Christian ship that went around, and it docked in the city of Bombay when my parents were there, and, and we went and we watched that film for the first time there many, many years ago. But the movie opens with a church youth group, Singing a song called, I Wish We'd All Been Ready. How many of you remember that song? Okay, cool song. Always loved that song. The second verse goes, a man and wife asleep in bed. She hears a noise. She turns her head. He's gone. Two men walking up a hill. One's left stand, one disappears and one's left standing still. I wish we'd all been ready. There's no time to change your mind. The sun has come and you've been left behind. It's based on our passage this morning, and I thought about singing it today. I had actually put it in the program, and uh, later I got to think about it. I said, nah, I don't think we're going to do that. But as I began doing some deep diving into our passage, I realized that though the sentiment of that song and even the truth of it perhaps fits the idea of the rapture, 
they had actually taken the passage in Matthew out of context, and we'll see why in a moment. So turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 24, as we finish up this chapter today. Now, you'll remember that Jesus has just given the disciples a parable of the fig tree. We looked at that last Sunday, letting them know that the second coming and judgment is right around the corner. Um, the summer is almost here, the summer signifying the, uh, the time of harvest. The harvest, spiritually speaking, signify the time of judgment when God's angels come and separate the good from the bad. Jesus, beginning at the beginning of the chapter, all the way down through verse 35, has been answering the disciples' question, what will be the sign of your coming, and when will it happen? And Jesus has laid out the events, all the different events that are are going to occur just prior to his second coming. Now that's the what are the signs part of their questions. Now beginning in verse 36, he discusses the when aspect of their question. When specifically will he come? So beginning in verse 36 here in chapter 24, and really all the way through verse 31 of chapter 25, he deals with that question, when shall these things be? So let's read our passage this morning in Matthew 24, starting with verse 36, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. But about that day or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in a field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding uh, with a handmill, one will be taken and the other left. Therefore keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. Truly I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose that servant is wicked and says to himself, "Ah, My master is staying away a long time. And he, he then begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Wow. So we've just studied the first two-thirds of the chapter here with Jesus laying out all the events that we will know right about when Jesus is going to come the second time. And then he says in verse 36, but about that day or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. And with that statement, he gets them, the disciples that he's talking with there, thinking about the issue of the when, because they they ask the two-parted question with him, and tells them the when is an unknown. 
Now, the signs that precede the second coming have been clearly given. They are really detailed in Matthew 24, as we saw as we went through that, and also in Revelation chapter 6 through chapter 18. You can't miss them. And the generation that is alive during that time period will see all those signs. They will be observable. They will be worldwide. There will be um, unmistakable indication of a collapse of the, of the world and its system and even of the universe. But the specific moment... The specific moment, according to verse 36, the day and the hour are not known. And he's speaking of a day and hour here. Down in verse 42, the same chapter, Therefore keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will will come. Verse 44, So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect Him. Verse 50, The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect Him, and at an hour he is not aware of. Even in chapter 25 that we'll look at next week, verse 13, Therefore keep watch, because you do not know the day or hour. Over and over and over, Jesus said, you don't know the day, you don't know the hour. So he's talking about a specific moment. Now listen, the time period of the second coming will be known. It has to be known because of all the sequence of events. All these things are going to be happening. You know it's, it's almost there. You say, yeah, um, but how, how he just said that you know, that's when he's coming, and now he's saying you don't know, but it has to be known because of all the sequence of events. The abomination of desolation will be a historical event. The incredible worldwide conflicts, the wars, the rumors of wars, nations against nations, the famines, the pestilences, and all that he described, it's all going to be there. But that day and hour won't be known. That'll be, that, that's all going to come at a sudden moment in an unexpected way. Now you say, yeah, but I thought verse 29 said that it was going to happen immediately after the tribulation. And in Daniel chapter 7, chapter 9, chapter 12, and Revelation chapter 11, and chapter 12, and chapter 13, it specifically says three and a half years at, from that point when, when the Antichrist sets himself up in the temple. 1,260 days. Very specific. Very precise. The day should be known, right? Yeah, but there's a caveat to that. Something we haven't talked about up until this point. See, once a sign comes, we don't know how long it'll be before Christ actually establishes his kingdom. That's a period, there's a period of time in there that we haven't yet talked about that Daniel mentions that opens up the time frame a little bit. In Daniel chapter 12, verse 11, he speaks of a period of testing and tribulation of 1290 days. So he adds an additional 30 days to the end of the 1260. And then in verse 12, the the following verse, he speaks of 1,335 days. He adds another 45 days. So we got 75 days after the 1260. This is actually what he says, verse 11, "...from the time that the daily sacrifice is abolished and the abomination that causes desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days." Blessed, then the following verse, verse 12, blessed is the one who waits for and reaches the end of the 1,335 days. So Daniel sees a three and a half year period, 42 months, 1,260 days, and then he sees another 75 days that's added on to that. 
which are not described. They are not described in Scripture. Something is going to take place during those 75 days that we don't know specifically about. Perhaps it's a process of setting up the millennial kingdom as Christ comes back. And I believe that's what Jesus is referring to when he says you won't know the precise day nor the precise hour. There's that 75-day period here. Something's going to be taking place. But about that day or hour, no one knows, he says, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Now, why can't we know? God knows. Why can't we know? Well, I think there's a reason for that. One of the biggest reasons is that we are often by nature, what? Procrastinators. I, I've got that issue. I think everybody has it for, to one degree or another, depending on the situation. You know, we'll, we'll get around to it. Uh, we're having too much fun right now, right? I want to do what I want to do. I'm going to live it up and do what I want. And at the last minute, I'll, I'll change. At the last minute, I'll pray. But I think another reason could be that, you know, we, we may just give up on life. Not that we're going to kill ourselves, but just, you know, what is the point? If he's going to come back next month on a specific day, What's the point of looking for a new job? What's the point of buying a new house? What's the point of ha- having children anymore? Because you know, life stops. We might as well go up on a mountaintop. It's happened in the past. Somebody, somebody has predicted a, a day, and people will go up on a mountaintop, and they sit there and wait for the coming. Day passes. Oh, bummer. He didn't come. But that's kind of the mentality that we could get into as well. So the Lord's chosen not to give us that knowledge. And we're supposed to, but we're supposed to live every moment expecting his return so that we are always prepared. Now, in this verse, we, can't under, we can understand the fact that we don't know the day or hour. Okay, that, that, that makes sense. We're, we're, we're his cre- creatures. We're his, his created ones. Um, we can even understand the angels not knowing that they, they are not omniscient. They, they don't know everything. But Jesus? Really? How is it that Jesus Christ, who is God, who is omniscient, which means he knows everything, how is it that he can't know something or doesn't know something? He said not even the Son knows the time. Well, I think that's fairly easily explained if we understand the meaning of his incarnation, of his coming as a man. Jesus Christ is fully God. No question there, fully and totally, because you can't be part God. It just, there's, there's no, no possibility there. He is all God. But when he became a man, he voluntarily restricted the use of his divine attributes. It wasn't that he laid his attributes aside. It wasn't that he set his deity aside because he was fully God. But rather, he restricted the use of those things, It was like he had them as instruments, but chose not to pick them up and use them. So he lived as a man without using his omniscience unless the Father told him something. Remember what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 and 7? Christ, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. 
When it says he became a servant, it means that he submitted himself to that which the Father wanted him to do, to that which the Father wanted him to say, to that which the Father wanted him to know. And that's why in John 15, 15, we have a very important verse in understanding Christ. Jesus, speaking to the disciples, says, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything. Listen, for everything that I learned from my Father, I have made known to you. So he was waiting to learn from his Father. He chose that. So at that moment in time when Jesus was telling his disciples about the second coming, the Father had not yet revealed to him the exact moment of his return. Oh, he knows now. (laughs) He knows now because he's back with the Father. After his resurrection, when he appeared to his disciples at the end of Matthew, remember Jesus said in Matthew 28, verse 18, all authority has been given to me. I believe that when he rose from the dead, he re-accessed all of his divine authority, all of his divine attributes, all of his divine knowledge. So, what kind of attitude should we have not knowing the day or hour of Christ's return? Well, our message title is Be Prepared, and that includes being alert, being ready, and being faithful. First of all, we need to be alert. The unexpectedness of the second coming calls for alertness. Verse 37 says, As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Now, what's he talking about? How was it in the days of Noah? Interestingly enough, the Apostle Peter talks about it in 2 Peter chapter 3, and he relates the second coming of Jesus Christ and his cataclysmic Holocaust judgment back to the flood. And I think one of the reasons is because it's the only illustration in human history that can even come close because it totally destroyed the earth, the face of the earth. Listen to what Peter says. Above all, you must understand that in the last days, before Christ returns, in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since your ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But he says, they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being, and the earth was formed out of water and by water. And by these waters also, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Now, both Jesus and Peter are saying that the attitude that prevailed during the time of Noah will be an attitude that will prevail during the time shortly before the coming, the second coming of Christ. And that's what he means, when, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Now, here's a thought. Not only do people not know the day and the hour the Lord is coming, but most of them aren't even going to care. It's true. Even with all the signs and all the wonders and all the things going on, they're not going to care. They're not even going to think about the fact that this could be the second coming of Christ. We better get our lives in order. 
They won't even be considering that as an um, alternative. I know it's hard to imagine. But they'll be on their computers and they'll be analyzing the universe and, and, and the, uh, the weather patterns and try to explain scientifically why everything's going haywire, why there are earthquakes and why there are all kinds of movements in the heavens and why the tides are all messed up and the, and the moon's not shining anymore and why the sun isn't working properly and why daylight has been shortened. I talked about the shortening of the daylight uh, earlier this morning and, and why there's blood in the seas and there's bitterness in the fresh water and why people are slaughtering each other and why there are terrible massacres all around the world. They're going to be trying to figure all this out scientifically. They're going to be trying to do it sociologically, scientifically, rationally, and they're not going to be looking at the truth of God's Word. They refuse to do it today, and they won't do it then. Even back in the days of Noah, people ignored the truth. They ignored the truth. Do you know how long Noah preached? And I say preached because in 2 Peter 2.5, uh, Peter calls Noah a preacher of righteousness. He wasn't just a builder, a boat builder. He had never done that before in his life. There was no need. It took Noah 120 years to build the ark. And do you know what he was doing while he was building it? He was preaching righteousness. He was preaching and calling people to get their lives right with God because judgment was coming. He told the people that it was going to rain and, and there was going to be a flood and they laughed and ridiculed and mocked him because there, there was no such thing as rain. They'd never had rain before. What is this crazy guy thinking? Why should they listen? They didn't believe in God. They didn't want to believe in God. That sounds like our society today, doesn't it? The religion of atheism is taking over our country, our schools, our institutions. You can't talk about God. He doesn't exist. Life goes on. Life will always go on. Verse 38, starting with verse 37. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them away. Now, I don't think they intellectually, Noah's been preaching to them. <laughs> They've been preaching to them, but they did not consider it. They just let it, let it go over their heads. They knew nothing about it. Unbelievable. 120 years, Noah's preaching and preaching and preaching and preaching. And they didn't believe it until they were washed away in the flood. And there are going to be signs and signs and signs for three and a half years before the second coming of Christ. Forty-two months, 1,260 days, and there will be preachers of righteousness that God has designated. And they won't, the people won't believe it until they are literally washed away in the ultimate holocaust of judgment at the second coming. They'll come up with all kinds of reasons to mock and scoff and laugh, and ridicule. And if they were that wicked in the day of Noah, there, they'll be more wicked in the day, in the days preceding the second coming, because as we've looked at before, the restraint, the, the restraint of the Holy Spirit, the restraint of the church has, will have been lifted, and evil will be rampant. Do you know what else will happen? 
Or do you know what else happened at the time of the flood? Back in Genesis chapter 7, when Noah and his family went into the ark, what happened? God shut the door. God shut the door. That was it for those people. No second chances. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Next Sunday, as we get into chapter 25, we're going to be looking at the parable of the ten virgins with their lamps and the oil. Going to a wedding, half of them were not prepared. And the door was shut to them. And now in our passage here, Jesus gets very specific in verses 40 and 41. Two men will be in a field, one will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill, one will be taken, the other left. Now listen very carefully, because this is really important. There are many who have taken these verses out of context and applied it to the rapture. That's what the song, I Wish We'd All Been Ready, was implying. I want to make a statement here, and I want you to listen carefully so you don't misunderstand what I'm saying. The truth of these verses, the concept of these verses can be applied to the rapture. But Jesus is not talking about the rapture in these verses. Let me explain this. You see, when the rapture takes place in the twinkling of the eye, Paul tells us in Corinthians, the church will be taken up and the people who are not ready will be left behind to face the judgment of the tribulation. But in the context of Matthew chapter 24, who are the ones being taken? Jesus is talking about people being taken in judgment. When Jesus says two, two men will be in a field, one will be taken, the other left, he is not saying that the one who is righteous is going to be taken. It's the unrighteous. It's the rebellious one. It's the one who has not believed in Jesus. Well, How, how can I say that? Go, go back to verse 39 here, talking about the people in Noah's day. It says, they, the unrighteous, the rebellious, the scoffers, they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and what? Took them. Isn't that interesting? Took them, the unrighteous, the rebellious, the scoffers, all away. So do you see what Jesus is saying here? As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the coming of the Son of Man. They knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in a field. One will be taken. The unrighteous, the rebellious, the scoffers. And the other will be left. We'll be looking at this separation process at the end of chapter 25 where he takes the goats and the, and the sheep and he separates them. And the goats, he, they, they are taken to everlasting, eternal punishment. And he takes the sheep and he brings them into the kingdom. When Jesus sets up his millennial kingdom, the people who will be left will be the believers who will go into that kingdom. Because we as a church will be raptured. Remember, we're going to be in heaven. We're going to be coming back with Jesus to be a part of that millennial kingdom. But the ones that will be left will be, will be joining them in that kingdom. He says in verse 42, Therefore keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. The word to keep watch uh, used here means to be alert, to watch, to be vigilant. It's a present imperative verb tense. Be continually alert. Once again, Jesus is talking about His second coming. The people of that generation need to be looking at the signs of the times and be ready. 
On the other hand, we can apply, again, we can apply that same truth to ourselves today. We need to be prepared. We need to be alert now, perhaps even more so, because, uh, because we know the rapture is going to be taking place. That can be imminent. It could be tomorrow. But even now, there are signs that we are to be reading. Folks, there are revelation-type things happening in our own country and in the world um, that, you know, signs that we need to be looking for or reading. And Jesus says in Luke 21, 28, this is one of my mom's favorite verses at this point, when these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing nigh. Christ is coming. So first, to be prepared, we need to be alert. Secondly, we need to be ready. Look at verse 43. But understand this. Okay, the Greek word used here is to know. Know this versus what we don't know, the exact time of his second coming, day or hour. But know and understand this, Jesus says, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. The Jews divided the night into four three-hour periods, from 6 to 9, from 9 to 12, from 12 to 3, and 3 to 6. That was the night. Jesus is saying that if the owner even knew which three-hour period in the middle of the night that the thief would come, he would have been ready. He would have been watching. He would have been waiting. He wouldn't need to know the exact minute or even the exact hour. He would have been prepared. Literally, the Greek word for breaking in, it says, uh, it says the, the, the thief would have broken in. The word for breaking in is digging through. They would dig through the mud wall or dig through the roof. Remember the... the uh, when Jesus was healing people and teaching in a house, and they're so crowded, friends of this one man who was crippled took him up on the roof. They dug, <laughs> dug the roof and let the man down so that Jesus could heal him. Same thing, same concept. He'd be watching. Well, you say, well, well that's, that's obvious. <laughs> if you know a thief has come out, obviously you're going to be watching, of course. Yes, but that's the point. That's the point. It is obvious about the return of Jesus Christ. It's going to be happening. Imminent. It's imminent. Yet there are so many people, even people in churches, who are ignoring the signs and not preparing themselves. Ah, it's going to be ages. Ah, not this generation. Next generation. It's interesting that Jesus' coming is often likened to the coming of a thief, isn't it? <laughs> we find it here. We find it in Second Peter 3, Revelation 3, Revelation 16, Luke 12, 1 Thessalonians 5, a number of times. Now, don't misunderstand those references where Jesus is coming likened to a thief is not that Christ is like a thief. That's Satan. He comes to uh, kill, kill, steal, and destroy. The reference is only to the fact that the return of Christ will come suddenly and unexpectedly like a thief coming suddenly and unexpectedly. That's the only analogy here. Although one could make the case that when, when a thief comes, he, he takes everything, Right? And when Christ returns, all the things that people put their faith in, that trust in, that they, they build their life around, they'll all be destroyed because nothing will stand the judgment that's going to come at, at the end. So his point in, in the analogy is simple. If a man knew a thief was coming, he'd be ready. And if we know Jesus is coming, we better be ready. I want to look at Luke chapter 12 just for a second here and find the other passage where Jesus gives basically the same, same warning uh, using a few different, uh, different terms. 
Um, starting in verse 35, it said, Be dressed ready for service. The, uh, the old English is, Gird up your loins. Uh, be dressed and ready for service, he says, and keep your lamps burning like servants waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. It says, it will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. Why? Why will it be good? Truly I tell you, he, the master, will dress himself to serve. Will have them... The servants recline at a table and will come and wait on them. It'll be good for those servants whose master finds them ready, even if it comes in the middle of the night or toward daybreak. That's amazing. When the Lord comes back, if we're prepared and ready, He'll sit us down to eat and He'll serve us. Wow. That's the kingdom He's talking about. If we're prepared when he comes, we'll sit down with him in his kingdom and he will serve us. Then he says in verse 40 of Luke 12, you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come in an hour when you do not expect him. Same thing that Jesus is saying here in Matthew 24. He's saying be prepared, be alert, be ready. There's one more thing that Jesus calls for and that is the fact that we need to be faithful. While we're being alert, while we're uh, being ready, we need to be faithful. We find this in the last few verses of the chapter. And here again, Jesus uses a, a beautiful analogy, a story, a parable, if you will. It's a powerful illustration to make his point and ends with a very sobering thought. Verse 45 says, when, uh, Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time? Now, what, what's he talking about? This is really a very interesting parable, and I've read a number of different explanations uh, for the meaning of, of this, including the one that says that the servant um, are referring to church leaders, uh, the household is the church, and the food is the Word of God, therefore church leaders must be faithful in continuing teaching the Word of God. Not a bad concept. It's true. <laughs> we need to be doing that. But I believe the context is wrong for that meaning. Throughout this chapter, Jesus is speaking to his disciples and talking about the generation, all the people of the generation that will be witnessing the signs that he mentioned. And I believe that Jesus is saying that the master is in the parable is God and that the servant represents every man and woman <clears throat> in the world. Every one of us has been given a stewardship. We have been given a responsibility, a God-given responsibility. God created us in His image. And He's given us life, He's given us breath, He's given us intellect, He's given us will, He's given us emotion and talent and truth and spiritual sensitivity and opportunity and privilege. And He gave us this world that He created for us by the word of Jesus Christ. And He did all that for us to love Him and to serve Him. And when he comes back, which could be at any moment, right? Will he find us faithful? Will we be doing the work that he has asked us to do? And that he has given us the talents for and the gifts and the fruit of the spirits to do? We are going to be held accountable. One commentator put it this way, Every man and woman in the world has been given a stewardship by God, 
After all, we are created in His image. And if you embezzle God's goods and privileges and resources and opportunities, then you will be accountable to God for the wastefulness of your stewardship. And he goes on to say, hell is going to be filled with people who used up God's opportunities for themselves, who abused their God-given privilege, and who failed and refused to serve God in the way that he commands. So in our story here, the master of the house expects his servants to be ready and to be faithfully accomplishing their duties. Verse 46 says, It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. The Greek word for um, be good for is actually blessed. He will be blessed. He's talking about believers here. They are the ones who are being obedient to their master. They are the ones who are serving their master. Obedience, doing the will of God, is always the mark of true salvation. Our obedience to God's word and doing his will will show that we have been saved by grace. By our fruit, we'll be known. So when the Lord comes, he'll find the true servant doing what he told them to do, fulfilling his will, living out their stewardship to the fullest. Then he says in verse 47, Truly I tell you, he will put him, the one who is found being faithful, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. It's incredible. Remember, Jesus is talking about his second coming here. He's talking about the judgment that's coming. And he's talking about his millennial kingdom that he's going to set up. What that says is that when the Lord comes back and finds his faithful servants, his trustworthy servants, his obedient servants, he is going to put them over everything he possesses. That's an incredible thing. Do you know one of the things that we're going to be doing in the millennial kingdom and for all of eternity? We're going to sit with Christ on his his throne. It's true. Revelation 3.21 says, To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. Well, that's going to be an awfully big throne, don't you think? Folks, life is stewardship. What we do with this little moment of time that we have been given here on the earth right now will determine whether or not we will rule in eternity on the throne of Christ. Now we find the flip side of that coin Verses 48 to 51 as we finish up here this morning. But suppose that servant is wicked and says to himself, my master is staying away a long time. And he, he, he then begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that servant will come again on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When the Lord come, he's going to find many who weren't faithful. Jesus has given a number of those examples in his teaching. Those who who were faithful over little are given a great amount to be faithful over. And and vice versa, if you're not faithful, he can't trust you with more. Those whose lamps are not trimmed and ready. We'll look at chapter 25. Some who uh, didn't have their talent and use it, didn't take their talent and use it, but instead they buried it and they hoarded it. What do you say is going to happen to them? They will be cast into a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus calls them wicked. Suppose that servant is wicked. Verse 51 says, He will cut him. 
the wicked servant to pieces and assign him to a place with the hypocrites. Wow. That shows us what God thinks about hypocrites, huh? Those who go through the motions of being a Christian, but who have never made the decision to be true followers of Jesus Christ, you can't fool God. Remember back in Matthew 7 when Jesus was differentiating between the true and false uh, disciples? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, what? You evil doers. And here in chapter 24, Jesus says the servant is wicked. The word means evil in nature. His nature has not been changed. His nature has not been transformed. He has not been given that new nature in Christ that we have. And what is he doing? Anything he wants to. He's having a good time. He doesn't care. He just wants to have fun now. Oh, someday I'll get around to thinking about Christ. He's he's counting on the fact that that Jesus won't be coming back for a long, long time. I've got at least another 40 or 50 years or or more to live. I want to live it up. I'll keep keep my eye out, and at the right time, uh, I'll make a decision and kind of slip under the wire. I'll wait until the floodwaters rise to knee deep, and then I'll knock on the door. Jesus, no. The door is closed. The door is closed. It's too late. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him in an hour he is not aware of. And what's going to happen? He says he will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Do, do, do you know what the cutting of pieces refers to? It's a gruesome image. The Greek word is diaktomeo, dichotomized. It's used in Exodus 29.7 in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, speaking of the sawing in half of an animal when an animal was offered in sacrifice and cut into two pieces. It's to illustrate the serious, devastating deadliness of the judgment of God. When he comes back and finds this person who thought he could sow his wild oats and live it up and do whatever he wanted to and could squeak in at the end, It's going to be too late. Jesus will come at a time he does not expect, and he's going to pay with a very severe price, and he will spend all of eternity weeping and gnashing his teeth. So, what is to be the right preparation for an unexpected and sudden return of Christ? Be prepared. We need to be alert. We need to be ready. We need to be faithful. We need to be alert by watching for the signs. We need to be ready, expecting His coming. And we need to be faithful to His commands and to His word and the stewardship that He has given to us and accomplishing what He has asked us to do. As we close this morning, listen to Paul's admonition in Romans chapter 13, verse 11 and 12. And do this understanding the present time. Okay, be alert, be watchful. Understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. 
The day is almost here, so let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of God. Or armor of light, excuse me. Listen, this is not fiction. This is not fiction. This is the truth. This is fact. And this is how it will be. And just as the prophets said how it would be for this first coming, and Jesus accomplished every single prophecy leading to his first coming, so he is going to fulfill every prophecy leading to his second coming. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. Be prepared. Folks, I plan my life as if Jesus is coming back next generation or the generation after that. But I live my life as if he's coming back tomorrow. Folks, Jesus is Lord of all. And the question is, is he your Lord? Scripture tells us that at the name of Jesus, what? Every knee shall bow. Some are going to be bowing in loving adoration. Some are going to be bowing in terror. But every knee will bow. Father, this morning, we thank you for your promises. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your warnings. We thank you for your prophecies. We thank you that you have told us that you are coming and that it could be at any moment and that we're going to be taken and and we don't have to go through all all those horrible uh, tribulation times and the judgment Father, I pray that this morning, understanding what is to come, that we will prepare ourselves to be prepared every moment of the day, to be alert, to be watchful, to be faithful to you and your word. And Father, I pray that you would use us in a powerful way. And if there is one here this morning, Father, that has not made that commitment that has not made that decision to truly follow Jesus Christ and make Jesus Christ the Lord of their life, I pray that you'll speak to them very powerfully by your Holy Spirit this morning. And they will, they will come to the point saying, you know, I, I've, I've just kind of do, been doing my thing and I'm, I'm hoping for the best and I'm, I've been a pretty good person, but you say that's not enough. I pray that you would bring them to the point of saying, yes, Jesus, I, I believe that you are the Son of God. I believe that you, you are in control. I want you to be in control of my life, and I want you to give my life completely, wholly, totally to you. And I want you to be Lord of my life. And Father, a simple statement of that sort changes our life, transforms our life. So, Father, I pray that you do a new work. In each one of us, in Jesus' name we pray, amen.